Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome once again to Once a DJ. Today we're talking to San Francisco DJ, producer and remixer Patrick Diaz, aka King Most. Patrick, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking, my man. Thank you. Excellent. So let's start at the start, like we do with all our guests. And how did you get into DJing? How I got into DJing? Uh, I love sharing this story, actually. So my older brother was a DJ. Um, and, you know, he was, uh, I think he, was, he started as like a hip hop DJ. And just being that typical thing where you want to kind of emulate your big brother and his friends. Um, I just, we had turntables in the house. So I was already a fan of hip hop music and I just started practicing on my own and I, you know, I, I gave it a go and I loved it. Um, but I also have to add, aside from my brother being a DJ, um, in the Bay area at the time and still to this day, there was such an amazing, uh, array of talented DJs. Like, of course we have D styles and shortcut, but we have all the uh, the radio mix master DJs, and I guess they're on. The, I would put them on the same level as uh, like other fame mix show DJs that you would find in Kiss FM in New York or K Day in LA. Uh, also, like a a crazy amount of mobile DJ crews. Um, Oliver Wang wrote a book about them. Um, yeah, a, a lot of amazing uh, club DJs like Cameron Paul that are putting out mix it or kind of like they're kind of a those DJ centric kind of record pool kind of compilations. Yeah. Uh, so there's just, it was from all directions. And I, I got to add real quick is that it's a time where like hip hop was like at such an amazing era. It was like exploding and catching on. And so, so what year was this? This was like 92, 93. So, yeah. you know, by the time I was exposed to DJ, like I already was already a hip hop head, I already had tapes and my older brother's influence and, you know, like I was probably the only 11 year old, 12 year old that was like, <sighs> yeah, uh, Dwick, take it personal, cause single, I got that. You know, I, so I was like really kind of like a good couple of years ahead of my peers a little bit. So um, yeah, yeah, I DJed, uh, like we said at the top of the combo, I DJed one of my seventh grade dances, so. Amazing. So, <laughs> so it sounds like there was a lot of kind of turntablism and hip hop DJing that was easily accessible then in the Bay. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, when you say turntablism, that's true, but that, the, the terms of what ISP and what we'd see with the X-Men and, and stuff like that, not so much, but yes, there was battles, there was a lot of kind of like, not quite sound clashes in the reggae style, but, uh, these mobile DJ crews setting up who had like the best lights and biggest sound and elaborate setups, those kind of things going on. And then the radio, then the DJs and the mix shows. So it was around. Yeah. But it definitely, in a sense, yes, there was DJ culture all around. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've obviously watched about a hundred times Doug Prey's scratch documentary, right, like a Bible right. to me. Uh -huh. So that's all about turntablism. And a lot of the guys that were in that world on the West Coast, it sounded like we're in these like mobile DJ crews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shortcut, who's my boy, and D Styles. And, uh, you know, I got to really shout out uh, DJ Quest and the Space Travelers. We're kind of little, a little less known. Um, we all come from, some way, come from mobile DJ stuff. And it's kind of funny going full circle. Like a lot of the gigs I do are now private events, corporate events, weddings. And that's kind of a little bit of that hearkening back of mobile DJing as well. So it's still there. Um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely, they definitely do come from mobile DJ crews for sure, 100%. And, and thinking about it, some of those guys that you're talking about, so Shortcut, 
people like Mixmaster Mike. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Their sets are really diverse as well, aren't they? So they might be playing metal one minute, reggae the next, dubstep mm-hmm. the next. Do you think that's mm-hmm. that's from being in that mobile unit sort of um, era where you would have quite a wide range of music? I think it's I think it's a amalgamation of a couple of things. I think yeah, being like. You know, I interviewed Shortcut one time. He goes, yeah, you had to kind of have a little bit of everything. And I think that's kind of just part of, you know, hip-hop DJing from a certain era. Um, also, in their examples, they travel the world. They play for different audiences. Yeah. And and I think also when you're like a celebrity DJ or, you know, celebrity relative to the context, you do have a little carte blanche to kind of like, let me let me kind of throw some couple things in there that um, – that I don't that because I can that type of thing. So, um, yeah. but yeah, and also they're music heads too, you know, if I can tell. So talking about celebrity, then if you were doing the seventh grade dance, were you kind of a celebrity amongst your peers at school? No, not at well, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I think uh, the people I went to school with, we were all just like really cool with each other. Um, you know, also kids are kids, like 12 year olds are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this then. When, when did you become, and we might be jumping around your timeline a bit, but that's fine. That's fine. When was King most born? Oh my God. Uh, that name. Uh, I I would say 2003, 2004. And I used to like lie and tell people, Oh, it's like, it's a, I, there's a reason why it just sounded cool when I needed a name. That's all it is. I, I just come to terms. I embrace. That's the story. There's no story. It, it just yeah. sounded dope. It just sounded cool. So and, we, uh, when when you were 12, did you have a DJ name? Then or were we just going no, as Patrick Diaz? I was just going as Patrick. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that's it. Was just that, that's all it was. And that gig I did. There's a photo of me and uh, super meatball chubby kid. I want to say I had like one Technique 1200, which is like the standard turntable, and then like some belt drive component thing, and like maybe a crate at best of records. And it was, I I didn't kill it. Like, let's be real. (laughs) I I didn't kill it. Like, I didn't have the music for enough records for what my kid, my like homies wanted to hear. So it was, I learned, you know what I'm saying? So, So, how much older than you was your brother? Um, I'd say about three years older, three, yeah, about three or four years older. And, you know, he passed away when I was really young. Um, and towards the end of his, uh, his life, he was DJing, but he got more into like house music, um, like different types of house. And at the time I was like, I think like, like most hip hop heads of our era, we weren't really trying to like hear or learn about house music and the joke's on us. Like we probably (laughs) listen to more house or dance music than hip hop at this point. Um, yeah, I was super into underground hip hop. Like I was going to this record store in Daly City called Q's Records and buying like the first pressings of like Jig Masters and the very first pressings of like Fondlem Records. Like early, I was super on that stuff. Um, like records that I see that now go for like, you know, 80 to a couple hundred dollars. Like, oh, I have yeah. that. I was really on it. And that's because the people ordering them were like heads. I was all about the underground hip hop, scratch tapes, f- recording freestyles off mix shows. And he was into like dance music. So we kind of, we kind of separated musically, but he would occasionally um, like steal some of my records, like East Flatbush project, the hot indie joint that kind of crossed over. <laughs> he would take that from my crates and somehow make it work and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to say Patrick Diaz would be a really good, um, good like, house DJ name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, uh, like Roger Sanchez, back to back with uh, Patrick Diaz at boiler room. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it works. I'm, I'm buying a ticket now. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were young and doing it, were you, did you have other people your age that you were that you were doing this with, or was it very much like a, a solo like passion? I would say mostly solo, but I had a, a homie in high school. He he was into scratching, so I would come over, I would go to his house, he'd give me a haircut, and we'd watch Exercise by X Men or the latest DMC uh, battle video. Um, yeah, he was like my one buddy, and when we went to college. He went to like a nice, really great school, and I didn't go to college until much years later. I just super got into like music and discovered the internet, and like I was trading with people all over the world, like 
DJ videos, mixtapes, mm. scratch tapes. So when he would come back on break, I would show him like, yo, I got this crazy Mixmaster mic video, him like just practicing at his house. And we would just watch that while he gives me a fade and stuff. So <laughs> um, yeah, that was basically it. Uh, I, I didn't think I didn't really find like homies until much later. And they were more like, to this day, more friends that we happen to are both into records or production or music. You know, we're friends first and then the music thing is second. I'm lucky like that. So, yeah. Yeah, because it can be a difficult one to find people because even just in hip-hop, for example, your your lane can be so specific potentially mm-hmm. that you might be like, you know, you might have another mate that's into hip-hop, but then what you get excited about getting, they might not quite get that same excitement about that same thing. So it is mm-hmm. it is hard to find sometimes that connection, I think. Yeah. Now that I think about it, that's a great question because I have uh, one of my best friends now we met um, because we're just from that same era. We all like DJing and record collecting and we're the same kind of political mindset and the same sense of humor. So it gets like music was a connecting thing, the initial connection. But again, now it's like, yeah, again, I think, oh yeah, my, my best friend. Oh yeah, we met via DJing, but it's the music is kind of just secondary. Um, but yeah, I think also, you know, I was a club rep the second I can get into clubs. So I, to this day, a lot of people that I still hang out with are people I've known for a long time and they are DJing, but we're part of like a more of a communal scene that we support one another. Um, you know, we're not in a crew, but we DJ a lot together. Oh, we'll go to each other's parties or we'll go kick it outside the club and have food or, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause you've just hit on something really interesting that we've not really covered is, is political mindset. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be something that that traditionally I think is is pretty linked to music taste. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, the kind of messages that you represent in and that you believe in. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's going to change now that people, these kind of tribes are diminishing now that people are getting the music from absolutely everywhere and they're listening to all sorts of different things. I wonder if it'll be harder to find those people with those same values beyond the music. Um. I think it's interesting. I think you and I are, are, are obviously from different places. So I think I, the little I do know about UK dance music and DJ culture, I, and, and what I little I do know about UK politics, I, it's it's probably there's some similarities and probably some differences as well. And I have to remember that I live in, in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and we're very progressive sometimes. Yeah. So certain things or certain events or spaces that. Um, are seen as very like progressive to us is like just normal, you know? Um, yeah. But I still like cherish them, especially these past few years. Like um, we're talking about political mindset. This is more like a social mindset, but I throw a party once a month called Love Supreme and we get a lot of LGBTQ folks in there. Like are we are we had our monthly last weekend, I think. And it's one of the very first, not for first, but one of the few times I've seen openly gay men be at a party dance with one another where there's like straight people and there's bi people and it's not like we went out for that try to construct that party and you know most i think all three of us identify as straight that throw the party but again being in san francisco is just part of the kind of um reality that exists that you you just we're just more open-minded in on yeah. terms of spaces at the same time though there's still tons of discrimination, racism, classism, and gentrification that happens. It's I I I can't paint SF this perfect spot yeah um but yeah i I could you know i I always think about the 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 social and political construct and music and djing and spaces a lot so yeah yeah hip-hop's a really tricky one isn't it because there are because a lot of stuff a lot of older stuff you know particularly um it's cringy yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. i was struggling to find the words but oh yeah man it's it's quite cancelable I mean, I mean I, yeah, countable is one way to say it, but I think it just aged. It, the times are different. Like, yeah, I I very much struggle with uh, like uh, the musical moral compass, but at the same time, I still enjoy it. But yeah. I think I, I'm at a point where, like, for example, Cool G Raps Four Five Six, love that record. I think that's to me like the unofficial sequel to Illmatic. You know, Nas is on the cover, same label. Cool G Rap is a, it was a mentor to him. I can go on and on, but he says the F word a lot, and that is super fucking cringy to to, 
Yeah. You know, so, you know, but you all say like, well, what about misogyny? He's like, oh, you know, so mm. again, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of terrible things in music, especially the music that has been a center of my life. Um, but, uh, you know, you got to take it. I, I think everyone has a line as long as you have some type of line and um, you could, it could, yeah, it could really, it could be madding trying to make sense of it all. You know, my boy, he played Chris Brown last night. I'm like, Oh. Why? Uh, you know, I know, but a bunch of women, women of color were like, this is my song. So it's like, oh, shit. So, you got, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so a difficult. One. It's so yeah. difficult. That's a massive conversation in itself. Yeah, um, yeah. Just going back to your timeline then, how, mm -hmm. did, how did you evolve from that first, um, from that first gig then? Um, I, I think it just, I didn't have another gig really until I was 21 or 20, 21 to get into clubs. That's the age limit here in, in the oh, States. Right. So I just kept just DJing in my bedroom. Um, I think I ended up making, no, oh shit. Yo, I remember this. This is funny. Okay. If we're following the timeline, I was probably 19 or 20. Do you remember this hip hop crew? They're really dope for what they did. They were called Anacon. Do you remember them or know their Anticon. name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I befriended some of those dudes when they moved to the Bay Area. So there was this place called Rico's Loft. It was two stories. The top is where they would perform and they would have like kind of that more like abstract left field hip hop groups perform, including themselves. And downstairs was just like a dance party. So I would sneak, we, I would show up at eight o'clock, uh, sneak into the back of the pizza place through like the back door and then set the turntables and DJ with everyone there. And it was so weird because upstairs they'd bring out like they had Slug from Atmosphere. It was first ever non Minnesota show, and it was insane. And I'm downstairs playing like Dr. Dre and Bismarcky and like part and like dance hall. It was such like the, and so yeah, that was that went on for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, I was totally underage. That was probably the first gigs I do remember. Then after that, uh, started DJing just like random bars, and then I. I really caught a little bit of a stride when I started working with uh, another friend that I'll, we could talk about in a second, but kind of dormant. But then I put out a mixtape at, at some point that had, I asked the Anacon guys to freestyle. That's how I became friends. I got my first DJ gigs, made a lot of real life friends from that. And I was selling like a mix, I was selling mixtapes via the internet a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, like really early, via the vinyl exchange and this thing called ATAC. Um, so yeah, I was kind of doing it still. So were you marketing them as well, those tapes? Yeah, I was. Whatever I thought marketing was at the time, I was, <laughs> I, you know, because this is still pre-internet. It's very nascent. It's still early. So, so what, I was, what area are we talking then? Um, Man, like 96, I, post high school for me. So like oh, yeah, 90, so very early internet. Yeah, right? yeah. So I was sending them to like Herb Magazine and they reviewed it and I was like, oh shit like yo i made it and sent it to other like little hip-hop magazines that had mixtape reviews and i think vice the guy that did like a hip-hop kind of underground thing reviewed it or shouted it out so that was how i was marketing it but i would still go to like the local like big music shop and try to sell them and they would they would sell it was really weird i'd get phone calls like we need 10 more i was like of the tape and then, <laughs> so, you know so like selling a hundred tapes when you're you know a child or you know is or a teenager is like pretty amazing and i was and i wasn't like a battle dj i was just like a regular dj dude who just i guess made a tape that people really liked you know yeah so, it must yeah. have been pretty good it's not like going back i'm like this ain't bad it's it was some four track madness and i was it was like half like mega mix mr dibs meets just like a good hip-hop mixtape a lot of remixes that i made at the time and playing samples and yeah it's not bad so yeah I think I remember the the first sort of couple of mixes I made. I put so much effort into them, yeah. into layering things, yeah, um, looping things up, things like that. Really, loads of care and attention to it. And I think in the past, however many years since, I've not put anywhere near that level of effort into into any mix. But equally, probably overthought the track listing <laughs> way more. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, I remember the era. I remember when I stopped making intros for the mixtape and just kind of like start the mix. But yeah, yeah. I would spend like, I, I would yeah, I would do the whole mix itself, no matter how elaborate it was, I would still save the intro for the end because I know that would be the thing that would take the longest because you're probably doing like a million takes, cuts, 
just right and yeah. like find find the right lines of dialogue that is about I'm better than you at DJ. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but if I could say real quick, I've I I really stopped making or recording mixes, putting them out for a long, long, long time. I was just focusing on edits and other stuff. But I'm starting to record myself live because I think it's important to document yourself as an artist and kind of encapsulate an era. So yeah, I'm gonna hopefully put out like at least two or three mixes that I've done live and that are up to my standard of what I think yeah. good clean mixing is. Cause that's also kind of hard, but again, it's to kind of document these things because I don't want to like turn back and be like, I really don't exist as a DJ beyond Instagram posts and edits that I put. So that's a, that's more of an aside. So, yeah. Yeah. So with the edits, cause mm-hmm. I was watching something the other day about Frankie Knuckles and how he basically invented house music right. with the tape edits that he was doing. And it made me think about that because he was he wasn't really doing them for anyone else. He was purely doing them for him for his mixes. Mm-hmm. So is is that how you approach doing re-edits? Yes and no. Um, I think. Well, when I first started the whole calling them redirections, I think I've been doing that for the past ten years. Is because they all the the drive or the desire for what I was doing was kind of nebulous. Like sometimes. It was, oh, I'm just going to put drums underneath this classic funk song to give it legs, you know, or give it more like bottom. Or sometimes I'm putting R&B acapella over a, a different sample or beat that's in key, or I'm replaying everything. Or it's a kind of, if you, if you heard my stuff, it's like a, it's a combination of a different things. But a lot of it was just stuff I heard on those like early, like old school, like DJs I heard coming up. Like when they, I heard these like, you know, on KML, our local station out here, they're using the four track and they'd fly an acapella over one beat and the chorus, the beat would change and it would change again. And that was like so amazing. And then hearing like classic New York, like, you know, Ron G blend tapes or hearing early mixtapes are like the Beat Junkies or DJ O-Dub and they're doing this thing or finding white labels, like Peter's just making white label remixes. I was like, oh, I want to do that. So that's a little bit of that in there too, just recontextualizing stuff you like and you know and and piecing it together with other things that you know and you enjoy too. So, um, but yeah, sometimes just a tool, like, yo, this is a dope song and it's drums. Boom. Yeah, just like fatten it up or whatever. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, just, just on the point of um, recording your live mixes, I think what I like about when I record a live mix is I don't overthink anything. Mm-hmm. And also just going through a mixer's circuitry just sounds nicer than just multi-tracking a mix, I find, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. of the analog electronics. But I do just think you, you you just tend to DJ in a different way because you're, just, you're going through your crate. You've, you've not got the time to overthink it. Mm-hmm. And I think you can just make a really nice cohesive mix where when you're recording, you can you can think, oh, but I need to do this thing. You, you try to think of these tick boxes rather than I'm just doing what the atmosphere needs right now. Right, right. I think it's it's a different set of muscles that you're using because you're relying on just your preparedness, you know, you reading the room, the time of the room, what equipment it is, um, uh, you know, um, in the moment. Like you're recording, it's live, and if you, it, so it's it's a diff, it's a totally different skill set. And there's some mixes live that I'll hear back, like you know, talking about like Larry Levon. Like the mixing is like, I, I got to be careful when I say that. it's just not up to standards that I think are good. But you yeah. talk to people there, they're like, this shit was epic. You just had to be in the room. I'm not doing I'm not doing anything like that at all. I'm hitting record <laughs> I'm hitting record on like the opening half of the night when not a lot of people are there so I can have more time to focus and and whatnot. But yeah, there's a certain thrill and a certain kind of uh side that is shown when a DJ records a mix and it's live. Cause you really get to see like, all right, let's see let's see how you roll. Like no punch ins live. Mm-hmm. And to say I say all that when you do have a good 50 minutes or more or 40 of a good solid live mix, that's up to your standards. That's like the best. And the inverse, yeah. you go back, you listen to it. You're like, Oh, like, Oh, I wish I would have waited an extra bar. And can I edit that in post? I don't know. So yeah, it's a, it's a mind fuck. Yeah. It's a tough one. Um, so when you were learning as well with, with techniques, were you, 
were you doing things like long blends or were you more just like scratching things in and, and shot? Because with hip hop, mm -hmm. unless you've got doubles and you've got an instrumental of something and you've got the vocal version, mm -hmm. it's quite hard to do anything that's kind of a long blend, I find a lot of the time. Oh, totally long blends. I, I learned using instrumentals. So I would get the 12 inch, like instrumental, cool. Because that way um, I knew I could just practice and it just for some reason my brain it's even now i don't know why i did this but my brain goes oh if you're trying to learn how to mix the songs you should use the beat because that way the raps won't get all over each other mm -hmm. so i would so i remember i would first start you know we all scratch on the one the kick yeah i would start on the snare because like to me that's the most audible part of the beat and i would just mix the yeah. snares together and then and then just said yeah, listening to like these mix show djs these mixtapes how clean they were it's like oh this is how it should sound and I learned about, you know, eight bar counts and 16 and things of that nature. Um, so, yeah, it was about the long blend. I think it's just, it's just a, it's a West Coast thing. He said something about hip hop. New York guys, it's like dropping the shit. And there's a beauty to that. That's a yeah. whole different. It's not just about throwing it in there. It's about knowing what to throw it in there. West Coast is more long blends, you know, cl cleaner, the longer, the better. At least a certain school, a certain strain of, of uh, West Coast DJs. Yeah, I remember, you, you've just brought up, I remember um, a friend of mine, Beatmaster, Ian Wright, shout out. I remember him coming around to my house once to record a mix, and I just couldn't believe how clean <laughs> his mixing was. So yeah. much better than mine. Yeah, it's it's really, there's nothing tighter to me. Like, I love scratching. I practice scratching a lot. I watch tons of, you know, people on Instagram. Um, but hearing a nice, long blend, and... I think in the past, like say five, six years, I've started to appreciate in key blends. It's like, ooh, yeah. E flat minor, E flat minor, you know, um, it's it's amazing. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's something special to hear someone mix nice and clean and long. It's like, it's advanced and you gotta like tip the hat to that person for sure. So yeah. Yeah, in, in key is an interesting one because I think to do in key live, is incredible because it's about having your ear, isn't it? Because what you can do now, just for any listeners that aren't kind of up on the, the technology side is you can get software now that will tell you what your BPM is, so your beats per minute and what key your song is in. Mm -hmm. And so you can get two records and without looking at them, theoretically you can blend them and mm -hmm. it'll even, the software now will even sync them up so you don't even need to beat match at times but still they can get the keys wrong. There's a load of other factors involved in it where the machine doesn't have every answer. So you've mm. still got to listen and you've got to use your ears and trust yourself more than the machine. So oh, it yeah. is to pull it off live is just such a skill. So impressive. Oh, oh yeah. Like I, I couldn't do this, this in key mixing if I didn't have Serato, cause I'm not going to be like, Oh, this is E flat minor. You know, like I yeah. studied piano theory. I play piano instruments, but yeah, I could tell when something is in key, but if something's like a step off, I'm like, oh, this sounds fine. But yeah, to your point, two things can be in E flat minor, but they're still like harmony and mm. they could be clashing. But yeah, when you have those moments where you throw it in and you take the bass out, it's like, it's 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 sick. It's like one of the, I, when it happens in the mix at live, for me, it's more enjoyable. I think certain people in the audience, whether they know it or not, they they could tell, oh, this is like something really, really good. So, yeah. I think this is why I enjoy making mashups. Mm -hmm. Because I like, I like mashups with sort of sung choruses and things because when you, when you get them in key, and particularly when you get the rhythm and the flow and the feel of the two things is the same, it's just really good. I'll send you one after this that see what Please. you think. It's, it's the one I'm the most proud of because it's um, Area Codes. Uh-huh. Um, Ludacris and Nate Dog with... Um, the Azimuth song, doom, doom, doom. Oh, boom, 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 boom. You know that one. I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, actually, I'm a big fan of Azimuth, their later stuff. And it goes, pa, 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 like a robot voice, like a little talk box thing. Yeah, it's going to bother me, but I know that. That's probably one of the earlier Azimuth songs that I've discovered. But yeah, send, yeah. Did you do years ago a Big Daddy Kane or Young and Company? Yes. <laughs> I, I was thinking, is that the same? Because wax on could be, yeah, I, I wasn't sure, but yeah, yeah, I was going to play keep that. this bit in the edit now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, dude. I mean, 
Yeah, why not? It's it's DJ, man. We're all constantly promoting ourselves one way or another. So <laughs> do yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think I just think mashups are so so much fun. Yeah, I, I love it, dude. I love it. Um, so when you got in your rhythm and you were DJing out, mm-hmm. were you at a point where you could sustain yourself financially quite quickly from DJing, or did you have to do other jobs as well? Uh, no, that's so funny. We talk about jobs and whatnot. So. I mean, I was DJing a lot, you know, I think around 2013, so now about 10 years ago, that's when I like, I moved out of the, uh, my parents' house, went to college a lot later, and I realized like, yo, I can, I was pulling it off. I was starting to get some weddings and a lot of like private events and like doing gigs for like the SF MoMA and other museums and, you know, tech tech was really starting to take off in sf so djing Mm -hmm. some random you know oh this little company called twitter it's like oh okay (laughs) you know um, yeah (laughs) um so yeah between that and you know dj gigs and clubs i was yeah i was able to be financially sound and i was doing stuff for like you know brands and you know red bull or porsche or whatever um so yeah i was uh i was able i've been able to like basically have a pretty cush living for a single dude that no kids unmarried like i can't really complain and actually i just this whole life of djing has like led me to like my first like quote-unquote real job and it's with like apple music working on dj mixes so it's kind of like oh, nice yeah i'm still doing the same shit it just you know it's slightly different contexts i guess so yeah you're on, on a day right yeah day rate yeah uh that's a lifestyle change but it's really like i don't know again it's i'm pretty lucky uh because you know like i said i went to college and i wanted to kind of give myself options and choices in life and that what did you study um i got a major in communication and a minor in marketing so like uh, um didn't matter was it marley marl or prince paul that did communication as well a lot of people do communication. It's a very yeah. vague, wide uh, uh, kind of thing to go to. Like I took a lot of philosophy classes and also some public relations and a lot of like semiotics and, and things like that. Other people use it to get into, you know, PR or whatever. It's, you can go a lot of different ways. So it's one day it's PR classes, another day reading, thinking, reading about like German philosophers and things like that. So it was, it was a mixed bag, but I loved it. And, I went to I went in a time that I was finally ready and willing to go, not because uh it was the thing to do at the time. So yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So just going back to the corporates then, how did you first start getting how did you kind of first start getting your foot in the door for those? And I think this is I swear to God, this is kinda like if you think about it, it's kinda scary if you're an artist you're trying to make it. It's kinda unfair for some. It was just I just randomly knew some friends that my good friend Mary, she was like, "Hey, uh, I work at Gap. Uh, my department's having a little party, and you know, she was a music kid. She always come to see me at clubs. Like, can you like bring some speakers and DJ our party?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Then I would see all her friends, and because you know they'd come to my club gigs. Okay, cool. And then you know, oh hey, someone else from this other department wants to, you know, have you DJ, and then you know, one person and another person, and you know, they find out it was like. Again, I was kind of running this dual kind of path. It's like, oh, we know you as King Most. We know you because of the mixtapes or just being a good club DJ. And you do you do private events? You do weddings? Like, oh my God, they totally like freak. Like, can we have you? And it's, it kind of went from that. Um, but it multiple times, just all I just happened to know somebody. Um, and they like what I did on professional or on time and things like that. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, it's really... It's a really scary thing to tell somebody that's trying to get their foot in the door, like, yo, how can I get corporate gigs? And I'm like, just be good at it. That's such, that's such a bullshit, like vague, almost helpless piece of advice. You know, be good. That doesn't matter. That the, Being good at something does not mean you'll get put on, unfortunately. It just, sometimes it's luck and it's, it's fucked, you know? So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's been through this with a few people that being a skillful DJ doesn't guarantee Hell no. the level of career that you'll have. There's so much more involved. Yeah, it's uh, that's something I've been realizing past five, six years. It's so many other factors, and it's very easy and at times understandable to get jaded and cynical. Um, but uh, I, I think you you could you. It's okay to get jaded and cynical, but it's 
I think it's best not to just stay at that point. Like, yo, this mm-hmm. sucks. I should have got the gig or why did they get the gig? Totally normal thing in all artists, no matter any field. But it's, it's kind of like move forward and be productive and try to figure a way to get out of that little that rut yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that's a life skill just genuinely yeah. isn't it kind that's of, therapy that's a, that's seen a therapist that's therapist patrick <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of okay when things go wrong fine they'll go wrong there's, there's no point staying angry about it. i'm trying to learn from it oh it takes time man it takes time dude you know so with weddings then mm-hmm. how do you find them because I do intend to try and get some kind of just pure wedding DJs on here as well. But I had a period of doing weddings with my friend DJ Hudson, great DJ from the UK, did the season's beatings mixes with J Squared, another good friend. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really good DJ. Right. Way right. better than I am. Um, <laughs> and we got into this dynamic after a while where I would kind of work the room on the dance floor, be the, be the kind of social one. And I'd do some of the DJing but he'd do the heavy lifting with the DJ and, and what was nice with that, it worked for us because I quite like just chatting to people uh-huh. and, um, and he liked to know he had kind of a barrier for the requests. Right. Right. You know, so someone I could concentrate, if people were coming up asking for things that weren't necessarily right, I could, I had the time and the focus to just be a bit kind of softer with them. Right. Right. But it doesn't mean you didn't get some that just would go crazy. I remember this one woman just going absolutely off her head because we wouldn't play. Well, we didn't have um, Brian Adams' Summer of 69. Okay. Um, Yeah, she was like, I'll tell you something, this dance floor will go crazy if you play that. And I'm like, (laughs) I can't play it because we've not got it. (laughs) You know, there there wasn't streaming at this point. We were in a reception black spot. There was no downloading it. Um. So yeah, I think weddings certainly in the UK, it depends. We've been lucky with ours because they've always been word of mouth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So people kind of know what you're about. Right, right. Um, but you've still got to have a load of, a load of Motown and mm-hmm. some pop stuff, but probably not too much. But mm-hmm. how have you found it with weddings? Is it people that really know what you're about or do you have to play a load of stuff that you don't really want to? I think it's a, it's a combination. Um, I'm very fortunate where... It's kind of like the whole corporate thing. People find out you do weddings, like holy shit, like can we have you? They get excited because they either know me from a radio show, my mixes, my edits. I'm doing an event after we get off the phone for someone that found me on Twitch, seeing me at clubs. And like, this is what's really cool that people with good taste they fall in love as well. It's not just yeah, all, yeah. it's not just people with like basic ass taste that fall in love. It's people with flavor, and they. So when they have tastes, they are so more accommodating and excited to have you as like the guest DJ, not as the work or the help, you know, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of really, not really the best philosophy to to view other people, but they're excited to have you. And um, also one thing I've realized is that people of our generation and younger, they've grown up going to DJ, to see a DJ, whether it's, you know, uh, Purple Disco Machine or Todd Terrier or or Ilo Escobar or Ali Escobar, I'm sorry, or people like me or Questlove, Rich Medina, da, 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 da. So they know mm. what a DJ is and they now have a context and not, and they, they remember the crappy weddings when they were kids of some guy in a tuxedo, white gloves playing like the Macarena. So yeah. they, so it's like, they, they know what they want because they're, they have tastes They've seen DJs, they follow DJs, and they're, in my case, and probably for a lot of other people, they're fans of the actual DJ itself. So it's a combination of things. But I, I, it's, and I got to add, um, it's also, at the end of the day, it's still a service. And I think a good wedding DJ is, you're yes, you're playing for the couple and their friends, but also remember there are people there that, you know, are re- elderly relatives and they want to feel included. I think it's important to include them or people that haven't gone out in five years because they have kids. This is their one time to cut loose. Yeah, they're not going to want to hear like the coolest, most forward listening release, but you know, it's still a wedding and you're getting paid a good amount and there's a lot of return work possibility if you kind of have that in mind as well. Um, So yeah. Yeah, that was the the other thing I was going to say because I think sometimes a couple might be really excited to get you and they really want you to play a certain type of set. Oh yeah. 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 But 
they're the they're the kind of five percent of the people at the wedding yeah. that want that, <laughs> and the other ninety five percent do want some lowest common denominator, yeah, standard sort of function music. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it is it is a really hard one to to get right, but. When you can get the old person dancing to Tribe Called Quest, it's pretty uh-huh. satisfying. Yeah, and I think also, again, man, this is this is a day of, of your your of service, and you know everyone is actually happy to be there, and it's a celebration of joy and love and friendship, and you know you playing Funky Town is it just feels right as opposed to mm. being like, nah, I'm gonna play. Patrice Rougen, haven't you heard instead? And they don't, well, they don't even know that stuff. Uh, it's just, yeah, just understanding the context. And then you get in your nice little suit, you go in your car, you pack up your speakers and with a pocket full of money, then you can play your, you know, Tony yeah. Allen, <laughs> uh, Donald Byrd records or your Hit Boy and Nas album. So it's, again, it's context. And again, you think about the amount of work that we have to do and the amount of money we do get paid and the joy we bring and it's still DJing. You're kind of like, eh, yeah, I'll, I'll play Brian Adams Summer 69. Is that what it? Summer 69? Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't think I know that song, but I heard it. I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. That one. Yeah, it was so. massive over here. <laughs> Particularly right. for this one woman. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, man. Yeah, she was angry. Uh, well, she you know, me. Yeah, I, I would say these situations, if I could add to the listeners and yourself, I always say like, I don't have that. It's, I go, you know, it's on the list and of what the couple wants, but I didn't even say like, I'll say what Jenny and whoever want the bride, the, you know, the people getting married um, is, you know, what if I play this kind of, I try to like play a, I'm trying to like work with you, meet you in the middle game just to be, yeah. just to be like helpful. And they don't know any better. Again, this might be the only time they've seen a DJ in the past decade. So they don't, they're not up yeah. on stuff. So you got to let them live a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of the soft skills with handling requests. It's something we've not really got into too much with anyone yet on the podcast, but um, it's a massive, important piece. You're negotiating with people that, again, have no care or not no context of who you are in DJ culture. And that's, if you go into that thinking that, you probably will be a lot more understanding and you won't get worked up from people when they make requests. And yeah yeah so so uh, at what point did you start putting out the records uh the seven inches i would say mm. the majority of them came out during the pandemic 2020 and i think still being a hardcore record collector and just seeing what was out there seeing that there was a market for it i was trying to find out ways to put them out more and more um it's just super hard but at the time there was that little window where there wasn't like a, you know, 12 month, two year wait to get something pressed up. So I was able to, you know, uh, a lot of people hit me up at different labels, especially out in, in the Europe and some in the UK and some here in the United States asking for certain edits. And I think what I was also making or what I, a part of my catalog is stuff that does make sense to have on seven inch for the buyer of that type of stuff. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like last year, I think I had one release this year. I might have three. It's just, it's such it's so freaking long that it's just like I don't even bother like trying to even think about it anymore because again, you put something on in February and it won't come out till like the next April. It's like, oh, I forgot about it. I made this. Like, oh yeah. So it's tough, but it's been a, it was a it's a joy, man. I really wish I could put out more. To be honest, uh, it's not the money, uh, the cost. It's just the time and yeah, all that stuff. So yeah. So you said some, sometimes it's the, the labels are approaching you for re-edits of specific songs. Yeah, that's usually how it's been. Like uh, Recents, where Man Zimmy does private stock, or I have something come out with Arup Roy out in the UK. Uh, they hit me up. It's like, yo, I really liked this. I've always loved it. Would you want this on 7? And I'm like, I'm, most of the time I say, yeah. Um, it's just a matter of me getting on the ball, sending the files, and you know they're pressing the whole logistics of the plating and the million and one things uh, that needs to get done right. As long as they get done right, then it eventually happens. So, um, yeah, most people, but I, I did one myself last year and I want to do a few more on my own just because, um, you know, time, I, I, why wait? So, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned lockdown there. What was your experience of it being, being like a gigging DJ? Did you struggle with it or was it really? No, actually, you know, it's really fucked up. I, I, I say this with respect to everyone listening. I kind of miss it. 
uh, and I have to, <laughs> I, I got to unpack that. So I had roommates at the time. My, my boy, uh, my boy, John Reyes, we used to do a podcast together and he's also a good friend and an amazing remixer and DJ. He's still on Twitch. Him and I were housemates. So we would just be kicking it. Like he showed me how to cook. So I learned how to cook. Like, you know, like I, I couldn't even cut an onion before this, but now I can, you know, cut an onion. Um, I really got into coffee making and I just got into a hyper run of productivity. I was putting out, like I was making like an insane amount of edits, learning a lot about production and music playing. I was streaming, um, you know, in, in the context of my own reality of just basically chilling at home, working on music, streaming, fucking around with music and food. Like it was, it was nice. Financially, I wasn't tripping because, you know, again, I've, I had, I don't have a crazy overhead in life. I don't have a mortgage or a kid or, or, or children or a family. So I was just kind of chilling. And aside from the racial social upheaval and catching a plague and to dying, it wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Um, yeah. So yeah. Can, can I just point out for the listeners that, uh-huh. If you check out Patrick's Instagram and just see the view out of his house. <laughs> that wasn't a house I was living in, though. I lived in a very different home at the time. But, oh, right. But yeah, feel free to gladly look at Hey King Most, H-E-Y-K-I-N-G-M-O-S-T on Instagram. Uh, that's You could see, uh, yeah, it's a nice view. I'm very lucky where I, where I live, so yeah. Yeah, because I've seen, I've seen the pictures with your turntables and the view that you've got whilst you're practicing. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty special. Yeah, it is, man. It really is, and and, and now we're kind of we're about to start spring or spring. Mm-hmm. I say spring in quotes because San Francisco is like kind of always cold. So I'm looking forward to like I might do some streams from the roof. Um, fingers oh, crossed. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> might be tight. Might be tight. So, um, so how much are you DJing out now? Then I know I appreciate we've gone here and there and everywhere with your timeline, but there's just been so many little sort of jump off points to get into. Yeah, it happens. It's a combo. Um, I still, do, you know, it's so funny. I got to be. I, I don't want to jinx myself. It's like pre-pandemic, I was trying to DJ every Friday, every Saturday, even Thursday, trying to DJ in other cities nearby. Uh, still do weddings. Still do corporate stuff. And, um, I think after it made me realize like what's really important to me, you know, um, I think one, it was, I didn't want to deal with these bar or club or venue people that were still not trying to raise the, the pay for DJs. I think that's one thing that kind of happened, pay rose for DJs and you're still trying to pay us X amount of dollars for all this or wants to jump through hoops and this and that. And I'm like, yo, dude, I'm not the one. Like, give it to some other uh, DJ that doesn't know their worth or is super hungry, that feels it's okay to shortchange themselves for a spot to get on. So I kind of like chilled off DJing, but I was still getting gigs. I have like two successful monthlies in San Francisco. I was just in LA last week. You know, I, I went to Miami to DJ over the summer. I'm probably going to go back again this year. Um you know, still getting other gigs, private events and other venues and places that really like me that pay me well. So I, I, I'm really lucky where I don't have to chase as much. Um, so yeah, I still DJ, I DJ last time, DJing today, my DJ tomorrow for an event. So it's good. And I have this like opportunity with the Apple music that is like super, that's kind of more important now. So, Hmm. um, well, that being said, I'm lucky where, I I say no to things. Or I just choose not to worry or stress about or chase gigs or parties that I'm like, I don't need to do that. Like I want to do it, but it's like, I'm not going to like, you know, play myself to try to get it. Uh, and I think that's, that's fortunate. And I'm very self-aware of that at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause one thing that really made me excited to talk to you aside from the fact that you're a great DJ was the fact that it seems like, and I know social media can be very deceptive, but it just comes across from your socials that you're someone that still just DJs with a smile on your face. Mm-hmm. You're playing good music. You tend to be in places where it's just a really good atmosphere mm-hmm. and it's just the vibe in, in sort of what you do just seems really good. And um, first of all, is that an accurate observation? And secondly, has it always been like that? Has that just been consistent? And, and if so, what's the key? Um, I, I like to think I'm, I'm pretty happy with the gigs I do, you know, like, especially post pandemic, I feel I'm more appreciated now by people, uh, than before, or maybe I'm, maybe a new audience is finding me who I, for what I do, but 
and I think also like I enjoy pop music, I enjoy club music, I enjoy mm. the, the, what the club goers like, and also uh, I'm lucky to kind of find a little space where I can play like you know fun you know, kind of Caribbean global bass edits of, of, of this and play some like LA hip hop. And then, you know, we, a party where we can close it out with Anita Baker. So I'm, you know, I know that's not the norm. So I've, I've been lucky to, to have, to make it DJing this long easier. Um, but also, yeah, I, I've kind of a, try to go with a good spirit about it. It's still the service and it's the weekend and try to put myself in spaces where it's like, yo, like I want to be here. Um, What's the second part? I'm sorry, your second question, if you could repeat that. I think you've covered it all. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. It was kind of, oh, and it was, has it always been like that? But I think, yeah. You've, Hell, you've kind nah, of- nah, bro. Hell no. I, if we could jump back, I call these the struggle years. And this was like the era of bottle service and clubs being super racist and not wanting hip hop and R&B. And the, you had to play like Pitbull, LMFAO, Katy Perry, Calvin Harris, uh, not Calvin Harris, but like really bad dance pop music. And I remember just having to do these gigs and like begging promoters and venues and, hey, just following up again, like that shit. Like I, that's that's the struggle era. And I was just just trying to find my way, trying to find gig work. I was still doing cool parties on the side and, and DJing with like, you know, the cool out of town guests. But hell no, that era was like the worst. And it actually gave me a lot of, it makes me appreciate the years since then and context of, of enjoying what I get to do now somewhat. Was so, that yeah. like late 2000s? Yeah, it was right before 2013, 2012, before music yeah. kind of like, you know, before K. Trinata Disclosure, that whole SoundCloud era took over. And it was still like, yeah, when dance pop was like the thing still, you know. Um, yeah, I hated that era. <laughs> but going back to those songs, I'm like, some of the shit still goes. Some of it's still terrible, but it's not bad. So yeah. In that era, did you ever kind of think, I just need to stop this and just get a job? Or were you always like, no, DJing's my thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna get through this. Nah, it was it was still I'm still fucking with DJing. You know, because I was I mean to be honest, I I, I I say it's with you know, I guess with being humble, like I was good at it. Like even mm. playing bad music. I still was like, yo, like I killed tonight. And you know that because the whole room is packed and they're going crazy and people are giving you props at the end and the venue wants you there every week. And at the same time, while I was playing the worst clubs or just playing the worst music of the time for someone that loves pop music, I was still doing like cool parties where like, you know, Conan Amir would come out or Rich Medina or Spina or Sara or, you know, this other poor progressive underground artists. I was still doing that at the same time. So um, yeah, I was traveling a little bit too. So it was a balance. It was a, it was a, a very big split. So yeah. I think that's something that you just get for a lot of full-time DJs, isn't it? That, that just some of your gigs are going to be shit, but they're going to pay well. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going to be what you're really artistically about. Mm-hmm. But then it's they're either more scarce or just the money's less in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of rough and smooth. Yeah, it's it's like that a lot. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're able to like give yourself a, a living that is respectable for you and you're happy, it's still like you're just DJing. It's still, I mean, yeah. uh, it's it's still not a bad way to do it. Uh, and I think it's very important for all DJs to have that. Like I, I kind of wonder, like these DJs are playing Vegas or whatever the equivalent of Vegas is around the world, if they kind of have those more like. Yeah, the room is smaller, the pay isn't good, but it gives me artistic balance. And I hope they do because I, I, I could see it being like emotionally just nurturing and fulfilling and probably will give you longevity of doing those big events where you're getting paid a lot of money and stuff. So um, hopefully everyone has their little like, the little like, you know, small party they do for fun somewhere. And some, even if it's not a party, yeah. it's some activity, some creative endeavor, you know? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so something else I wanted to ask you about was, um, sobriety, because now you've been sober for a few years now, right? And right. I was just wondering if that was anything that was that was related to DJing, or if the alcohol was just something that was too prevalent be- because of the lifestyle of a DJ. Yeah, no, I think it was totally DJing, hundred um, percent. I think I want to say if I could, what made me stop? It was just like 
you know, I, I've been, I'm also very transparent about seeing a therapist. I've been seeing a therapist for like five years now. And, you know, we talk about whatever we were talking about. And she, she asked, oh, well, is there anything else going on? Because, you know, I guess things were kind of no, seemed calm at the time. And I told her like, yeah, I've been going kind of hard lately. And she goes, what does going hard mean? And I was like, oh, like parting hard. She's like, okay. And I just started like sharing what was going on. She was like, just completely just dumbfounded. And, <laughs> and, and what it was, I was like blacking out like a couple of times a week from drinking and right. like smoke. Yeah, just really sloppy behavior. So I was like, there was nothing going on. I wasn't like... There's nothing going on except, you know, blacking out four or five times a week and getting home and being like, oh, how'd I get here? And yeah. probably doing a bunch of shit that I don't, that I wouldn't do sober now. I was like, you know, let me chill out. And I, I did, I, I was very proper, but I went to like AA a couple of times and luckily Alcoholics Anonymous for people mm -hmm. that don't know, like my problems, my little bumps in the road were like nothing compared to the people I heard. Like I was just... I, I was dumbfounded hearing the stories. And I was like, I think I went to two or three and I just, at the third one, I was like, hey, um, I just wanna let you know, I just here for a couple of days. I just wanted, to, or a couple of sessions, I'm checking out. And they, a lot of people in the room were like, I wish I would have done what you did when I was your age. So I was like, okay. And um, and I realized it, it's it's such, it's more like a social condition that we, that we, we get set up for. Like you're standing around, you know what to do with your hands. A bartender comes up like, come on, let's do a shot, let's drink. Um, so I realized it's it's not necessary at all. And a lot of my buddies, they're still my friends to this day at the time, their schedules were like, kind of like mine, kind of like loose and free, but they understood that and they were all supportive. So even my friends I did the hardest partying with, they're all like, yo, I support this. Like, I got you, if you don't want to like, so I was lucky and I, I, you know, I was seeing my therapist going to AA, I'd load up my gig bag with like waters and cold brew and other things to drink. Mm. And I set myself up for success and I I wasn't shy about it. I was like, yo, I'm just not drinking. And yeah, I, you know, I, I'll go in and out with, uh, you know, smoking weed or eating like uh, uh, edibles. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, I haven't drank yeah, in three years, and I, I don't miss it. It's and I'm I'm lucky. I, I'm lucky. I'm not like fighting the urge or anything because I have friends that are there. It's it's a problem. So um, yeah, I was I was lucky, and yeah, I, I think I, I'm reason why I'm very transparent, open about it because uh, there are probably people out there that are thinking, oh, can I do it because of my lifestyle, the work I'm in? Like you can do it. It's it doesn't have to be this weird sanctimonious heavy-handed thing that you're on social media about it's more like just just start and there's resources out there and anybody that doesn't support you or push you to do better is not your homie they they probably have their own hang-ups about it so mm. yeah yeah brilliant that's that's such a great note for us to end on um, thank you or, yeah. or to round it up with uh -huh. um so just before we do a couple more things um I ask all the guests, is there any one piece of advice you would give to someone starting DJing above all else to get them through it or, or maybe to help them to, to, to approach it and have a smile on their face like you do? Yeah, I, I would say there's a couple things, but one thing I always, I always go to is have standards. Just have standards. And I think the better standards you have, you'll start finding that pushes you along in other little areas of DJing. Like, do you mean standards as in the gigs you will and won't do, or do you mean standards for how good you should be as a performer? Everything. If you have standards as an artist of your quality of performance, that's going to reflect in the quality of gigs you want to do, the quality of business that you handle for yourself, the quality of professionalism and presentation, the quality of, of how you interact with people, everything just have standards the quality of music that you play all these things like just don't be going out there and just doing it blindly um you this takes time but just have standards artistic standards professional standards all these other things and um yeah if they're if they listen to the podcast i would say have fun with it it's still a service and today it's just djing um easier said than done uh, 
It's okay to feel shitty about it. It's totally normal. If you didn't feel shitty at some point, that's weird. Or it's you just just wait for it. So all those things. Um, but it's still it's a it's a great it's a great career, and there's definitely a, a, a global family sense to it. Like you and I are talking, so there's a lot of positives, and just focus on that if if possible. So yeah, awesome. Um, where can people find you on socials? Um, I would say the main thing is is my Instagram, H-E-Y King, hey King Most, I'm sorry, H-E-Y-K-I-N-G-M-O-S-T. And there is kind of like a launch pad where if I'm doing music or uh, my radio show or gigs in my area or other cities. Um, and if they're not into Instagram, they just want to go straight to the music, shout out to you, go to my band camp. Uh, it's King Most and SoundCloud King Most. And yeah, they're the Bandcamp's the edits and original music and SoundCloud's the mixes and re-edits as well. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah, man. Brilliant. Yeah, it's been awesome to chat to you. Um, thanks so much for your time. Likewise. Can you send me edits? Can you send me some jam? I want to hear this Azimuth Nate Dog thing. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.